Hello and welcome to Scraps. It is yet another episode discussing the stories of the sparks of scientific brilliance that underlie discoveries in science, medicine and innovation. I'm Arun Shridhar and we have a very special episode today. It is a special episode because it deals with the awarding of the 2021 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. I know most of the science nerds like me look forward to October as it is the month when many seminal discoveries are recognized through the course of history. Today was one such moment and I will tell you why. The first time I realized I was excited in my life for the Nobel Prize was when I was a graduate student when one of the most seminal discoveries got recognized in my opinion. To this date, and to me, it is the exciting story that I've ever heard. In 2005, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine was granted to Dr. Barry Marshall and Dr. Robin Warren, who had some of the most unlikely stories ever known to me at that point. It still boggles my mind the lengths that Dr. Barry Marshall went to prove his idea. That is a story for another day, but to quite literally prove that stomach ulcers was caused by bacteria, he drank a beaker of culture medium with the bacteria and ended up with ulcers. For someone who saw a lot of patients in my tertiary care posting during my undergraduate career in the southern town of Madurai in my country, India, and knowing of the phenomenon that stomach ulcers could actually be caused by bacteria in clinical practice, the discovery of the phenomenon being recognized made me feel as if I had won the Nobel Prize. It is in fact that this story that molded me into believing that if you trust your idea, you must put everything behind it and that it matters to lead the way. Seven years later, the second moment of excitement came when Dr. Robert Lefkowitz and his former graduate student in the late 80s and early 90s, and now a faculty member at Stanford, Brian Kobilka, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology for their studies of G-protein coupled receptors. I had grown to admire so much about the GPCRs as they are referred to throughout my graduate school and many targets that I worked on at my role at the pharmaceutical company, GlaxoSmithKline, was centered around GPCRs. I also worked on many of the safety liabilities that came with non-selective targeting and off-target effect assessment, and most of them were centered around GPCRs again. So this was again a very special moment for me. If you need more information about how drug discovery works against GPCRs, you might want to go back and check our interview with Bob Rufflow Jr., who was the person who discovered the first beta blocker for heart failure. So now let's come back to 2021. Nine years later, and I still remember the last time I was this excited, and you might be wondering why this is the case, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about. On 4th of October, the Nobel Prize was awarded to two individuals in recognition of their work and I'm going to quote the Nobel Committee now for their discoveries that have unlocked one of the secrets of nature 
by explaining the molecular basis for sensing heat, cold, and mechanical force, which is fundamental for our ability to feel, interpret, and interact with our internal and external environment. Pretty profound statement, I think. But so are most of the Nobel Prize announcements. But I want to explain to you as to why this is so exciting. Let me explain. I have, for all of my career, looked at excitable tissues like the heart and the nerves. The wonderful thing about these two organs is that they exhibit spontaneous excitability. One, to pump the blood through the body, in the case of the heart, and other to perform both voluntary and involuntary functions. As I said, I spent my graduate career studying the cardiac action potential and the underlying ionic currents in health and disease. The heart, much like the nerves, rely on proteins for the generation of spontaneous electrical activity and propagation of these impulses. These proteins sit on the cell membrane and govern the movement of ions like sodium, potassium, calcium that can move in and out of the molecular alleys encompassed by these proteins. And why is this exciting? Because this field brings together two of the basic principles in physics and chemistry together with biology. The two principles I'm talking about is something that most high school students will have an appreciation for. First, it is the Nernst equation for establishing what the equilibrium potential is for ion movement that many would have studied in chemistry. Meaning, if two ionic compartments were separated by a cell membrane, the Nernst equation dictates what would be the equilibrium potential such that the concentration of both the ions would be equal on either side of the membrane. The second is the most basic principle in electricity, Ohm's law, where the resistance to the passage of current is directly proportional to the voltage and inversely proportional to the current itself. These two equations are so simple but yet form the basis for understanding ion movements and many physiological processes in our body. Nernst equation determines the potential difference or the voltage for driving ion channel flow in one direction or the other, while Ohm's law determines how efficiently, quickly can that flow occur. All of this was exciting times and things to learn as a graduate student for me. And most processes that are described in the heart and the nerves so far are controlled by special type of molecular alleyways called as voltage-gated ion channels. That means that the ions like sodium, potassium, calcium move in response to what the voltage that they perceive are. So depending on the tissue and the configuration of the amino acids that form the ion channel, these ion channels open and close at different voltages, thus triggering a nerve impulse, for which Herbert Gasser and Joseph Erlanger were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1944. Gasser and Erlanger postulated that the thickness of the nerve fiber made the impulse travel faster. A decade later, Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley were awarded the Nobel Prize for recording the first nerve action potential 
in this giant squid axon. Then from there on, to understanding that the ion channels were responsible, it took another 40 odd years. When Irvin Eyre and Berg Sackman were awarded the Nobel Prize for being able to record the individual ion channel activity, much like how an electrician tests for current flow in a power outlet. Future prices for how these ion channels function then brought the Nobel Prize to Rod McKinnon in the 2000s. So the field of electrophysiology and the art of making deductions of how electrical activity is generated in the body is a source of inspiration for answers to many physiological processes. This is what makes this year Nobel Prize very special to me. So let me take it one step further to see if I can explain it to you. Do you remember the feeling of tasting spicy food? The feeling when you bite into an jalapeno pepper or really a spicy habanero pepper or a wasabi? Also, how can one differentiate between the spiciness of the pepper versus the smell and the taste of garlic to mint or a lozenge that contains menthol? Have you ever wondered how such differentiation in taste and sensation happens? Many foodies like myself will say that the taste of the food is as much about the smell and the aroma of the food as it is about the taste. So while one bites into a green chili and feels that their mouth is on fire, it is because the tongue has numerous taste receptors, but more importantly, these taste receptors contain a specific ion channel called as the trip channel or written as TRP channels. So these trip channels, as they are called, much like the sodium, potassium and the calcium ion channels in the heart and heart muscle cells, and nerve cells conduct ions in and out of the cells. But unlike the voltage-gated ion channels like sodium and potassium and calcium, these open in response to something extrinsic binding to them like a chili pepper constituent, a molecule that most of us will know called a capsaicin. So these capsaicin molecules binds to the protein called trip channels where TRP or trip stands for transient receptor potential channels. So unlike the sodium channel which opens and closes with the voltage change, these trip channels are very different from them where they open and close very transiently as long as the chemical is still binding to it. So molecularly, it is revealed as a little calcium ion puff that enters the cells to provide the chemical and those chemical interactions at the level of the ion channel in the cell membrane is then converted to an electrical impulse that then propagates to the brain from the tongue to the taste centers that something that you've bit into is so hot that your mouth feels like it's on fire. And it is interesting that while in humans, we associate the trip channels with smell and taste, like the hot chili flavor mediated by the trip V1 channels or the menthol flavor from the trip M channels, it was originally discovered in fruit flies. And will you believe it when I say that it was crucial for vision? So the mutation in the trip channel gene when it was first discovered was a negative mutant 
which means that the trip channel was not functioning. This rendered the fruit flies blind. So you'll be interested to know that the fruit fly experiment that I just described was done a long time ago, back in 1969, by two scientists called DJ Cousins and Aubrey Manning. So it does take a long time to understand what these strip channels actually do. So now that we know that these strip channels exist in tissues beyond the taste buds itself, and let's go back to Gasser and Erlanger's Nerve Impulse Nobel Prize. They postulated that nerve fiber differences in thickness meant that the thicker fibers can conduct the impulse faster and these thicker fibers were referred to as A fibers. So if you understand basic physics and you might have heard a theory in electricity called a scable theory. So Herbert Gasser and Joseph Erlanger concluded that thicker fibers conduct nerve impulses faster and thinner fibers conduct slower because the current dissipation in a thicker fiber is much lower. The slower fibers were then called B fibers and the, the smallest of them all, which were also slowest conducting fibers, were called as C fibers. For example, many of the nerve fibers that we know that are slow in conducting, the so-called C fibers, contain the same ion channel that is responsible for sensing spiciness or hotness in the food, the TRIP-V1 receptors. These TRIP-V1 receptors are responsible for a lot of the somatosensory signals that we know of. And how do we know that these TRIP channels are present in many of the small nerve terminals? Because when neonatal rat pups are treated with capsaicin, it sensitizes the channel so much that these channels ultimately get destroyed. So these animals are born with almost no C fibers at all in their body. And these type of TRIP-V channels are present in many tissues and organs in the body. Like for example, TRIP-V4 subtype senses the change in the capillary pressure in the lungs and signals to the brain about excess fluid congestion in the lungs in a patient with terminal heart failure that might ultimately precipitate pulmonary edema. And this basically triggers breathlessness as a physiological signature. And if you're wondering why does your mouth and the taste receptors tell you that your mouth is on fire, it is a protective sensation so that you don't ingest too much of the hot stuff. So therefore, trip channels are ubiquitous. For example, another type of trip channel called as trip C channels are present in vascular tissues like the arteries, veins, and signal vascular elastin signals in response to stretch. So another important aspect that was recognized by the Nobel Committee in the announcement takes into account the translatability of the scientific discoveries to application. And one of the points that they mentioned was its application of these strip channels to pain. So let me give you an example of that. TRIP-A channels are closely tied to the cytoskeletal proteins and acts as a sensory mechanism for detection of inflammation, injury, and pain. So naturally, and from a pharmacological perspective, if these channels are activated to sense pain, 
blockers of this particular ion channel are currently being considered for treating pain. So that is why the trip channels are important. And despite many other laboratories and researchers working on the trip channels before, Dr. David Julius was recognized because his laboratory provided critical information for the functional classification and characterization of these ion channels. So now let's come to the second awardee, Ardem Parpushian. Dr. Parpushian's lab at the Scripps Research Institute is critical in understanding another type of ion channel that was just coming to be recognized around the time that I completed my PhD. He worked on a channel called as a piezo channel, whose name might be similar to a few other medical technologies that one might be aware of. Piezoelectric crystals are the mainstay of ultrasound and echocardiography probes, and no points for guessing now as to what the piezo channels do. They actually recognize the mechanical forces that our body and the cells in our body sense. And it will become clearer if I give you an example. One of the most common examples that we hear in daily life or watch in television programs is of a patient getting a cardiac arrest. And as a result, the heart stops beating. What are the ways in which a first responder can try to resuscitate the heart? It is what the healthcare professionals and refers to as CPR or cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The core part of which is to check for the obstruction of the airway, ensure that there is no obstruction, check for breathing, check for pulse. Once there is no pulse, what ensures is a series of precordial compressions or compressions of the chest wall, which is a mechanical attempt to restart. One of the pioneers of demonstrating this was one of my heroes, Max Lab, who was at Oxford. If you want to know more about Max Lab's contribution to the field of mechanoelectrical feedback in the heart, please check our very second guest interview with Professor Kit Parker, where we talk about it in great detail. And Max Lab was a renegade. When he first proposed the theory of mechanoelectrical feedback in the heart in the late 70s, very few people believed him. But over time, it became clearer that there was something in the heart that would actually transduce these mechanical signals into an electrical activity. So, an appropriately timed chest compression can maintain the circulation and prevent death. And the core to this belief is that chest compression, or in some cases, electrical defibrillation using chest paddles, acts to provide the mechanical agitation that is required to restart the heart. And what is the center of this mechanoelectrical transduction? The piezo channels, of course. That is what Professor Ardem Parpushian worked on. The piezo channels are critical components of this type of mechanotransduction processes and therefore are critical to many bodily functions. It is found abundantly in the sensory ganglia that communicate the sensory signals of touch, feel to the spinal cord and eventually to the brain. These sensory ganglia are called as dorsal root ganglia and you can almost sense the importance of such channels in the pressure sensing regions of the body in addition to this dorsal root ganglia. 
Those pressure-sensing regions regulate blood pressure on a beat-to-beat basis. And those pressure-sensing channels are located on the carotid sinus in the neck. So therefore, these two awardees have demonstrated that the molecular mechanisms of how touch, sense, feel, taste, and stretch has impacted not just one organ or disease through their work, but have formulated a foundation to understand how many bodily processes in animals and in non-vertebrates work. So, coming back to why did we do this episode and what is the reason for me to tell you all of this? It is just so that we can provide you with another anecdotes and facts that might elude you in popular media. We have included a few references for you to look at in the show notes if you're interested in digging deeper. We also did this episode because it ties together the interdisciplinary areas of biology, chemistry and physics and how sensations that are physical in nature are deduced in the human body by a conversion of chemical to electrical stimuli in the case of trip channels or mechanical to electrical signals in the case of the piezo channels. Therefore, the underlying message is one of approaching a problem that impacts society and science at a holistic level and not in isolation. One can use bespoke techniques, but an integrated view is essential. We hope that the recognition of Dr. David Julius and Dr. Adam Parpushian excites, inspires, and engages many of you to know more about how external stimuli are understood by the human body. We have all the people who have come before them to thank as well for their contribution, and these gentlemen have extended that line of thinking and deduction. That's the end of this episode. But if you like this episode, please let us know of your love by sharing the episode link on social media and Twitter, LinkedIn, and other channels. Do tag us and give us your feedback. Thanks once again and hope to have the gift of your listening ears soon. <laughs>